from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Prophets. And, and listen, um, I have a tendency to probably believe that many of you have wrestled through things in life like I have. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very demanding home. My, my father passed away in 2018. Uh, my dad and I, when I was 21, were able to really reconcile some things in our relationship. And my dad became one of my closest friends till the day he died. Um, but my growing up years, my dad was enormously demanding. Um, I can remember vividly, uh, when I started high school, my dad had a rule that said, uh, I know you're going to be in honors classes. I know you're a smart kid. Uh, you're going to be in all the stuff that everybody else does. But if you make below an 80% in any class, you will not play sports for six weeks. And I remember getting a, a, a 78 in honors physics my junior year. It was our football season. We were in the middle of a potential district championship. And my dad, I brought my report card home. And my dad said, great. Did you tell your coach you're out for six weeks? And I said, can we, can we talk about it? this is honors physics, dad, 78 is like a 99. And he said, yeah, whatever. And so I marched my dad down to our physics teacher. And I said, could you please tell him this is a hard class? And she said, Mr. York, what's your rule? And he said, anything below an 80%. And she said, well, in honors physics, if David were in physical science, he'd have made a 99%. And she said, you, you should let him play. And dad said, okay, but he will come into tutoring every day at 7 a.m. Of which I did. I remember that same year, my junior year of high school, we were playing uh, our arch rival in baseball, and the score was 2-1 to one in the bottom of the seventh inning at their yard. There was two outs. There was a runner at second base, and the hitter hit a, a routine line drive up the middle. I was playing center field, and I dove to catch the ball off the grass uh, before it hit the grass, jumped up, saved the game. Our team went bananas because we'd beat our arch rival. We'd kind of stayed in the same spot in our league standings. I go running toward the dugout, exhilarated as I grabbed my bag to go out. My dad said, hey, let's go home, man. We got plenty of time. Looked at his watch. We got about an hour and a half. We can go home and work on your stroke. And I said, what do you mean, Dad? He said, we're going to go home and hit. You went 0 for 2 today. I said, Dad, Dad I, I, just, I just saved the game with this miraculous catch that, I mean, barely, Mickey Mantle couldn't have made that catch. And, <laughs> and he just said, too bad. We went home and I hit for the next hour and a half. Now, when I became a believer and started following the Lord in ministry, the same demanding attitude landed on me in my relationship with the Lord. And maybe you're like me. I, I've had a hard time believing that God could ever be happy with me. What I've seen through the years is I've always felt like God is scowling at me. Like, oh, it's you again. Or, yeah, I knew you'd blow it because you are a screw-up anyway. Or, I know that sermon was really good. Could have been a whole lot better. Or, did you share the gospel enough? Because you should share it a lot more. And I've lived with this thing sitting over me that just felt like that God was this demanding parent that nothing could ever be good enough. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you grew up in a home like that. And you 
<clears throat> you have the struggle of feeling like the scowl of God is at you. Maybe, maybe it's the fact that you, you're your own worst critic. You know, that's kind of a, a thing that we talk about in our world today. You hear athletes say, listen, nobody can criticize me like I criticize myself. And it's this badge of honor that we say. But in reality, what we're saying to ourselves is we're basically saying, I see all the bad things that I've done. And you can't get out of your mind all the bad things that you've done. And you wonder, could God <laughs> ever be happy with me? <clears throat> is he ever smiling at me? Does he ever receive me with joy? Or maybe, let's be honest, you have blown it. Maybe in your past there's there's serious addiction, maybe there's immorality, maybe there's unfaithfulness, maybe there's <clears throat> maybe there's you've been in jail. And in your mind, there's nothing that God could ever do to make himself happy with you again because you've really blown it. And God is always looking upon you with this eye that says, do you see what you've done? I was talking to a brother between services, and he said, you know, I grew up in something different. He said, my family was remarkably encouraging. But I always said to myself, God could never be that good. He could never be that loving. He could never be that kind. And I always doubted the character of God. Well, this morning from the prophet Zephaniah, I have some remarkable news for you. And it's absolutely remarkable news. And if you will let it settle in your soul, it'll change the way that you do all of life. <laughs> it's that big of a truth. It'll change the way that you see yourself, the way you see others, most certainly the way you see God. And the truth is that for for those of us who put our trust in God through Jesus Christ and we humble ourselves before God to just want to live the way he wants us to live, listen, God is singing happy songs over you. The God of the universe is singing happy songs over you. I just marvel at this for a moment that in heaven there's myriad singing around the throne of God. But do you know there's something else going on in heaven? The God of heaven is also singing. He's rejoicing over his people with loud, exultant songs. In your notes, you'll see our big idea this morning. This is what I want to pray that God would deposit into our souls. The Lord calls us to humble ourselves before him <clears throat> and trust him. And when we do, he rejoices over us. The Lord calls us to humble ourselves before him and trust him. And when we do, he rejoices over us. Let's stand together, if you don't mind, and let's read <clears throat> some sections out of the book of Zephaniah. We're going to read in Zephaniah 1, verses 1 through 6. Then we're going to jump to chapter 2. And then we're going to jump to chapter 3. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gadaliah, <clears throat> son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place 
the remnant of Baal and the name of the idol, idolatrous priests along with the, pre, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned <clears throat> back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or, or inquire of him. Now go to chapter 2 and look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decrees that, have, that before the decrees take effect, before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the, <laughs> the anger of the Lord. <clears throat> Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord, on the on the day of the anger of the Lord. I'll go to chapter 3, and then look at verses 15 through 17 with me. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it should be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Zephaniah was an intriguing prophet. He lived during a remarkable time in Judah's history. Now, if you've been with us, you'll know that the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, Israel, who in 722, about 80 years before this prophecy, uh, was sent off to Assyria. The Assyrians came in, conquered Israel, and exiled them off. You've got the southern kingdom in Judah, which has their capital city as Jerusalem. And you can see in verse 1... All of the kings that are listed. Now, Zephaniah was a prophet who had royal blood running through his veins. And he was more than likely the cousin of the last king on the list, which his name is Josiah. Now, if you know your Bible very much at all, you would know the name Josiah. Josiah became king at a very young age, at the age of eight, when his father Ammon, who was a wicked man, was assassinated. His grandfather was the wicked king, probably the most wicked king in Israel's history, the evil king Manasseh, who brought in all manner of idolatrous things throughout the nation of Judah. And his father Ammon was not much better. More than likely, the year of his beginning to reign is 640 B.C., which is about 70 years or 80 years after Israel has been taken off to the kingdom of Assyria. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 22, we're told that during the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah began major reforms in Judah when his secretary named Shaphan took an offering that was taken to help rebuild the temple or help build the temple and clean up the temple. And the priest began to count the stuff that had come in. And the priest informed Shaphan that he has found the book of the law. Now, just for a moment here, what the book of the law was, it is the first five books of the Bible, basically detailing God's laws, his commands, and his covenant with his people. It'd be similar to 
somebody coming to you and saying, hey, by the way, we've lost the Constitution of the United States like 40 years ago, and we just found it. This tells you a little bit about where the nation of Judah is at this particular time, that they have literally lost the book of the law, and the high priest says, hey, guess what? We found the book of the law. Now notice what Shaphan says when he returns to the king. He says, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. Now again, just for, you know, making this understandable for a moment, imagine somebody saying, I have found the Constitution of the United States. And you bring it to your mama's house, and you say, some dude gave me a letter. Check this thing out. Does it, does this seem, found a book. It's not just any book. It's the book that details the laws of God, the commandments of God, the covenant of God with God's people of whom which Judah is God's people. And Hilkiah is a priest of God's people. I mean, this is like, this is bad preaching worse. I mean, this is bad leadership everywhere. And when Josiah heard Shaphan read the book of the law, we're told in Second Kings chapter 22 that he broke down in tears. Because he realized Judah has rebelled against God and God's wrath is upon Judah. That's at this moment, then the high priest gets word that the king has broken down. He is repentant. He is contrite and he is sorrowful for what he has read. And notice what the high priest sends back word to the king about. Now, this is very important to our story in Zephaniah. But the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you heard, because your heart was penitent or contrite or repentant, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place, Jerusalem and Judah, and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Now look what God says. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. In other words, Josiah, you're going to die in peace. But look at the next phrase. And your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. In other words, the Lord does not relent from bringing disaster to Judah and Jerusalem. Instead, he says, Josiah, since you've bowed your heart to me and you've, you've been contrite about these things, I, I'm going to, I'm going to let you die before these things ever happen. Now, from this point, when this word is spoken to Josiah until the day of his death, Josiah worked to reform Judah. He tore down idol temples. He broke down all the idolatrous practices that were going on in the temple of God. And he removed any leader that was a false prophet or an idol worshiper. This guy flat out got to work to reform and do the things that he thought honored the Lord. And he died in 604, about 20 years before God sent Babylon to ransack Jerusalem. He died in an odd battle, uh, Pharaoh a Neko told him, don't come to war. I'm going to Assyria. Don't bother me. He went out to fight him instead, and he got killed in battle. 
Now that history is important to the story and the prophecy of Zephaniah. Because Zephaniah was right in the middle of these reforms. More than likely, Zephaniah wrote this prophecy to the nation of Judah as the reforms are taking place. And more than likely, the reforms and Zephaniah's prophecies were were hit with mixed emotions and mixed reactions. Some people received these things and responded very well. Some received them and were upset and uptight and did not receive them at all. And you're going to notice Zephaniah's prophecy is written to a group of people called the remnant, which we'll talk about, who will hear and will trust in the Lord and humble themselves, and written to the unrepentant who won't hear and will not humble themselves. And you'll see in Zephaniah a very clear outline in the book, which we're going to follow in our outline, try to anyway. Chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is all about the coming judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, as well as chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, is all about the judgment on all the nations surrounding Judah. And chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, is about about the, the hope for the remnant who put their hope in God of what God has planned for them. So let's start by looking at the coming judgment. Okay, and you're going to see this in chapters 1 and 3. You can see that the Lord's judgment is on, is on Israel. Chapter 1 verse 4, he will stretch out his hand against Judah and Jerusalem, their holy city. Now to put this again in terms that we can maybe get, it'd be similar to like the Lord saying, I'm coming to destroy America and I'm taking DC with me. It's kind of the idea, the, the, the holy, the capital city. In chapter 1, verse 13, he said he will plunder their goods and everything will become desolate. Chapter 1, verse 18, their money would not save them from the day of the wrath of the Lord. Meaning they could be as wealthy as possible, but God's going to, God's coming. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he calls Jerusalem an oppressing city who listens to no one, doesn't trust the Lord nor draw near to him. Her leaders were wicked liars. Her spiritual leaders profaned what was holy and defiled God's law, and it's very clear God was not happy with Judah nor Jerusalem. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, you're going to notice a list of nations that are being talked about. These are all nations that are surrounding Judah. From the north, south, east, and west, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, were all targets of God's Wrath And no nation surrounding them was excluded except for Babylon. Because Babylon's coming. It's clear that the God of the universe is about to shake the heavens and the earth with harsh and difficult things. Now, specific to Zephaniah's prophecy is the reason why. Specific to his prophecy is the sins that they are particularly struggling with. And you're going to notice in chapter 2, verse 10 that the Lord made very clear that it was their pride that was bringing about this coming disaster. Namely, it was a pride in the form of taunting God and boasting against the Lord. Now this idea, it's not very hard for you to recognize. It's the idea of a people or a nation basically saying, we're going to thumb our nose at God and do however we want to live life. We're going to shake our fist at Him and we're just going to live and do what we want to do. We're going to boast before him. In chapter 2, verse 15, speaking about Nineveh, look at Nineveh's pride. The capital city of the Assyrian, he said, 
This is what they said about themselves. I am, and there is no one else. You know what that word I am is, that phrase? It's a name for God. Assyria is so arrogant that they say, we are God. There's nobody around us that matters as much as us. It's this attitude that basically says, we will do as we want to do. We will stand before God, shake our fist, and one day when we get to heaven, we'll tell him all about it. I have several non-believing friends in my life who have told me, you know what, dude, I know you believe all this stuff about this God, but one day because things have been so bad in my life, I can't wait to meet him face to face and tell him what I really think. And my response is, well, I just tell you what the scripture says about that. The God in heaven will laugh. He will mock you with truthful sarcasm like you have never been laid bare with. You don't trifle with God. See, as we've seen before throughout our study of the minor prophets, the arrogance of mankind, believing that we can somehow live life without the God of the universe, and believing that we are the center of all things, is completely opposed by God. And listen, friends, we've got to be honest, it's the same arrogance that we see in our own hearts, isn't it? Same arrogance we see in our own nation, in our own, <clears throat> our own world. I mean, we... We just finished election season. Praise God, it's over, right? Regardless of how you feel it went, one thing you constantly hear is politicians and kings telling us they're the center of the universe. And the God of the universe is saying, no, you're not. You're not. Matter of fact, the vote goes the way I tell it to go. I put you in authority and I take you out of authority because he is the God of the universe. Human beings believing that their hard work earns them the right to be the captain of their ship. That's the arrogant pride of the human heart. And mankind thinking we can somehow shake our fist at God and somehow show him who we are, right? It's like that moment in, you know, one of the Avengers when, you know, Hulk picks up Loki and just slaps around says puny God. That's what God does to us, like puny little human, right? I mean, it's just like slap us around, right? I mean, but God is completely opposed to this type of pride. This pride that foolishly refuses to acknowledge Him as God or refuses to acknowledge our need for God in this life and the next. Friends, listen, the judgment of God is always on pride. Always. You might as well get that in your DNA right now. Is it anything that causes you to say, wow, look at me. God is going to slap back. He's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it in every nation, every business, every church, every individual. He's opposed to that kind of pride. But there's another sin in Zephaniah that I want to take some time to just play out because it's the second major sin. And really probably the biggest issue. And specifically, <clears throat> we could call it duplicity. Another word that is called, it's called is syncretism. Now what syncretism is, is basically attempting to merge different religions for the sake of what works. I'm going to be honest with you. American Christianity is filled with it. And we have no idea how filled we are in it because we are so experiential oriented. And syncretism is found in the text. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, 
you'll notice mentions of three things. The remnant of Baal, those who bow on the roofs to the host of heaven, and those who swear by Milcom or Molech. The sin of syncretism is mixing religions for the sake of pragmatism. Just whatever works. It's a belief that the God of the Bible and his ways are not enough. And we need to add elements from other religions and our culture to our faith to either be satisfied, successful, or to look relevant. And you see it everywhere in our society. In Jerusalem in particular, it was the worship of the false god of Baal, who was the god of sun and agriculture. And they did this by making sacrifices to him, worshiping him for their farming so that they would be fruitful and productive and their harvest would be plentiful. If they wanted direction in life, they would look to the stars, like somebody pulling out their horoscope and laying out what it is that they needed to do in this next season of life. Or if they wanted protection, then just offer up a son or daughter to Molech. Syncretism believes That the one true God and His ways are not enough. We must add from other religions or cultures in the world in order to be satisfied, happy, successful, or look relevant to our, to our world. Now before you step out and just go, you know, I don't, I'm not offering my kids to some false God. I don't worship Baal. Let me just read to you what Alex Mortier said about this section, which I think you'll find particularly challenging and convicting. Baal was another name for the gross national product. And wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, a sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as the essence of their security, Baal is still worshipped. Wherever excitement in religion becomes an end in itself... And wherever the cult of, quote, what helps replaces joy in what's true, Baal is worshipped. Now, friends, I don't have time to give you example after example of how American Christians have bought into syncretism in their education system, in their counseling plan and the way they do husband-wife relationships, and the way they deal with gender roles in the church. I could go on and on and on and on and on to help you see we have decided relevance to the world means more important than being true to God's Word. And the desire to be relevant has caused us to say, let's take some ideas from the world, drop them in the church, and you see it everywhere. In pulpits that would rather be entertaining than preaching God's Word. In church services that are to be exhilarating rather than being true and honoring to the one true God. We could go on, but you see the problem. And let's be clear about this before we move forward. You're going to notice how pride and syncretism go hand in hand. The understanding of saying, we can do this without God. So let's just add some elements that are not from God into our godness and God will bless it. The pride of syncretism will not be tolerated by the God of the universe and his people. He will not tolerate it. 
He is not the God of pragmatism and whatever works. He is the God of all gods who created all things, and He has set up His laws, His commands, and His principles that are His and honor Him. And some are practical, but let's be honest, some aren't. Some are challenging, some are hard. But all are to be obeyed in faith because God alone deserves all worship and all praise and God alone provides increase and success and protection and care for His people. And any nation or individual or church or business that will not honor Him as the one true God and live life under His ways will deal with God and His wrath. They will. So listen, right, right now is a great time just to, just to ask a question of your own heart. Where are you mixing the religions of this world with Christ? Where is experience more important to you than what is true? Where is pragmatism more exercised than biblical faith. And where you see it, it's a moment to repent, which is a great lead into our second point, the remnant and repentance. If there is a centerpiece or a hinge point in the book of Zephaniah, it's chapter 2, verse 3. It's a call to seek the Lord. It's a call to humility. It's a call to worship the Lord alone. This would make sense, wouldn't it? Knowing they're proud, knowing that they are, they're combining their religions and dabbling in several things. It's a call to say, listen, worship God alone and humble yourself before Him. It makes all the sense in the world. The hope that Zephaniah gives is perhaps the Lord would hide you from the disaster to come. But I want you to notice something about this translation. This language is hard in the original language. It's hard. And and, and the ESV translates it in a particular way that we must pay attention to when they translate this way because this verse is written to a group of people. And notice what it says. It's written to the humble of the land who do his commands. So you have to read this and you say... Okay, who are the humble of the land who are doing his commands when I've just heard about this nation who is proud and syncretistic? See, because normally in prophetic writings and prophetic books, you normally see God's wrath being poured out on the people who have sinned against him. But what you very rarely read is something like this. You don't often read about people inside the nation who are humble and are who are doing the commands of God. So you got to ask, who is this and why is this here? Well, Zephaniah introduces us to something that's very fascinating. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, and chapter 3, verse 12, he introduces us to a group of people called the remnant. This is something off some spy thriller thing. This is in the Bible, right? So don't, you know, make it out to be some secret tattoo you have to get, all right? The remnant, he says in chapter 2, would inherit the seacoast, The Lord would restore their fortunes. The remnant would plunder the Moabites and Ammonites' land after God judged them. And according to chapter 3, verse 12, this group was humble and lowly who take refuge in the name of the Lord. 
The remnant of the people of Judah were those who looked to the Lord, who humbled themselves before God, and they were not syncretistic. They were not mixing their religions, and they were not committed to whatever works. They were committed to what is true and what has God said and commanded. They are, we could put it this way, they are in Israel, but they're not of Israel. Paul wrote it like this in Romans chapter 9, speaking of people like this. He said, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, here's that nation again, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, look what he says, only a remnant will be saved. See, what Zephaniah is talking about in his prophecy is a judgment that was coming on those who refused to repent of the nation of Judah and of Israel. But there's a remnant of people inside of that nation that are the true Israel, if you will, who would be saved from disaster as they remained true to the Lord. Does that not sound like the gospel? Does it not? See, it's a good time to ask. If you were in Judah at this time, Would you be a member of the remnant? Would you be a member of the ones who said, we will stand only for the Lord God? Better yet, let's do it in 2022. As you've evaluated your heart from point number one, and you see syncretism working itself out, would you be a member of the remnant? Jesus said it clearly in Matthew 6, that no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. See, the call of Zephaniah is, seek the Lord alone. Seek righteous living as God has directed alone. Seek humility by acknowledging your need for the living God. And the indication from Zephaniah and other places in the Bible is that only trusting in the Lord will save you from the coming judgment. And only trusting in the Lord will make you a member of God's remnant family. So listen, this is why we would tell you if you're not a Christian, sitting in this room today is not going to make you a child of God because you walked in the door any more than me sitting in my garage makes me a car. To be a child of God, you... You must turn to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And listen, if you're a child of God and you see in your heart this duplicity, this syncretism, just whatever works, man. I don't care what God said. I just want something to help. Then you you need, you need to be checking yourself at the door. Because God is after not only what works, but what transforms your soul to be a one true follower of the living God. He's after your heart. He's after everything about you. Let's close our time by looking at the last point of the day, which is the restored people and the rejoicing God. Now, Zephaniah, you can tell by when you read the book, had one eye on the coming judgment on those who refused to repent and one eye on the remnant who refused God's kindness. Or who, who, who would receive God's kindness. He, he saw things in the near future and he saw things in the far off future. You're going to notice throughout the book his use of this phrase, the day of the Lord. Now most modern day Americans and their understanding of end times activity think day of the Lord as 
The last days. Everything's about the last days. We don't realize that most of the Bible deals with days of the Lord. John Calvin would even say, and I'll write this in my musings for tomorrow, would even say that the day of the Lord is being seen from the moment of Babylonian captivity until the day Jesus judges everything. The day of the Lord, you can see multiple days of the Lord throughout Scripture, not just one particular day of the Lord. It does mean a day of God's judgment in the immediate future. You see that in Zephaniah. It makes that very clear. Like what he foresaw concerning Babylon coming in 586 B.C. when they ransacked Jerusalem and they took down the temple. It was immediate. But he also saw something in the distant future. A day like no other day. When the Lord would judge all nations and bring about a completed work for His people. In other words, He saw what theologians call the now and the not yet. He saw something going on now that God was going to do it, but He also saw something down the road that was going to happen. And what you notice in chapter 3 is you see all of it playing out. In chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord, He sees the Lord showing all nations His indignation. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, the Lord transforms His people, transforms their words to praise Him, transforms their hearts to serve Him alone, transforms their pride in humility, and they will be at peace and at rest with their God. But then you come to chapter chapter 3, verse 15, and suddenly something happens. The King of Israel has come in their midst. And notice what this King does. Verse 15, He takes away their judgments. Verse 16, he strengthens their weak hands. In verse 17, he's mighty enough to save them. He rejoices over them with gladness. He quiets them in his love. And he exalts over them with loud singing. In verses 18 and 19, his people will no longer suffer reproach. He will deal with their oppressors. He will save the lame. He will gather the outcast. And he will change their shame to praise. And in verse 20, all that was lost will be restored. What you have in chapter 3 is God judging the nations, Israel's king coming to people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, including Israel, and God changes them, humbles them, strengthens them, and gathers them as His people. And that king who comes will never leave them, and He will always rejoice over them. Now, it's really easy to look at Zephaniah 3 and we go, man, this is awesome. It's a day in the future when God will finally roll all the scrolls of history up and everything will be done. And what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. We are, that is an amazing day we look forward to when everything's done. No more sin, no more crying, no more pain, no more Achilles breaking. All good stuff happens in that day. And it's easy to go, wow, what a day that's going to be. But I want to show you something in the text and in history that this is something you can experience right now. This is not some far off pie in the sky moment. Your king, Christian, has come. This isn't just something down the road. Zephaniah saw a day when Israel's king would come. And notice what he'd do. He'd restore things. He saw a day when the remnant, a people from 
Every nation, including Israel, would all in a sense speak the same language of praise. That this king would deal with all the judgments that were placed upon his people. And he would turn their shame to praise. And he would raise a kingdom from this people, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, including the nation of Israel. This king sounds just like Jesus. You're supposed to say amen at that point, right? I mean, amen, that's awesome. Sounds really good. Right? Great. Go for it. But stop. There's more, right? To quite, to just take a quick stop, pause, and let's just look at history about this. In Zephaniah's time, in 586 BC, on the day of the Lord, the Lord brought the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem. And they laid it to waste. <clears throat> Tore down the temple, tore down the city. Would never recognize it. They took unrepentant Judah away because of their pride and syncretism. About 50 years later, three guys, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, were sent back to Jerusalem by the king of Persia with Persian money <clears throat> to go start rebuilding the city and their temple and their city walls. That was completed in 516 B.C. 500 years later, a king comes riding in a donkey. Into Jerusalem, as the people said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And he rode into that city that was rebuilt by Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. And he walked into the temple and did all sorts of manner of work in that particular temple. And you would think, wouldn't you, that Israel, knowing their history, because they write it down, well, they did forget the book of the law, but writing it down, they would know their history and they would think to themselves, knowing their exile, that during Jesus' time in Jerusalem, in Israel, you would think they would be humble, contrite, walking in righteousness. Yet once again, what do you find in first century Jerusalem and with the Israelites? They're proud and they're syncretistic by mixing the worship of the one true God with their oral traditions. And the oral traditions became their law. Jesus himself said this about Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood <clears throat> under her wings, and you were not willing. See, Jerusalem, your house is left desolate. You can almost hear Zephaniah through Jesus saying, disaster's coming. So what happened to first century Jerusalem in her pride and syncretism? <clears throat> what happened to the city that decided they were going to reject Jesus as their king? Well, if you know your history, you know what happened. In AD 70, the Romans came in and they did exactly to Jerusalem what the Babylonians did in 586. They raised it to the ground. And tomorrow, Lord willing, I'll write some things about history that the remnant, those who put their faith in the living God, in Christ as their king, escaped the city and were never harmed. Now you need to ask why. Why was Jerusalem laid to the ground? Because they rejected their king. Because of their pride and their syncretism, they could not see him as their king. Now this is important because when Jesus came as Israel's king, <clears throat> remember what Zephaniah said he would do. 
Zephaniah said he would cause all people from every nation, including Israel, to call upon him, which, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, is exactly what Jesus did. Don't forget, he will transform his people in their character, their humility, and their strength. Their weakness will become strength. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, and Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus has come to do what? Make all things new. Then he will also gather people who will with one voice worship their king, which according to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, and Revelation 5, 11 and 12, is what gospel ministry is all about and will one day be completed when myriads upon myriads from every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather around the throne of Christ and worship him. In other words, the remnant of God's people are those who put their trust and hope in King Jesus. So, hopefully you are in that. Because this is important for you because it means if you trust in Jesus, your God is in your midst and he will never leave you. That's remarkable news. It means that nothing can stop him from saving you because he is mighty to save. It means he is rejoicing over you with gladness. He always looks upon you with a smile. He's never looked upon you with a scowl. It means he will quiet you in his love because he knows that your life is hard, it's challenging, it's painful, and it's difficult. And what your God does because your king has come is he says, listen, I'm here. And he quiets you in his love, and his love will never stop caring for you. But it also means this, that God, this is amazing news, that he is exultantly over you singing loudly. Louder than your preacher yelling. He's singing He's singing. So can, can you hear him? Can you hear him singing? See, can you hear him singing? And I guarantee you that probably for most of us in the room, the answer is no. I don't. I read a chapter in 1999 of a book called it, Pleasures of God. Chapter 7. That's how impactful it was in my life. The most impactful chapter in any given book besides the Bible that I'd ever read. The pleasure of God to do good to those who hope in Him. Here's what Dr. Piper wrote. When I think of the voice of God singing, I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. And I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun, 865,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth, and nothing but fire, 1 million degrees centigrade on the cooler surface of the corona. But I hear this unimaginable roar mingled with the tender, warm, crackling of the living room logs on a cozy winter's night. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, speechless, that he is singing over me. He is rejoicing over my good with all his heart and with all his soul. Christian, what that means for you 
is that your God is not exasperated by you. Your God is not frustrated with you. Your God is not scowling at you. Your God is not impatient with you. Because King Jesus has come, the King of Israel has come, your God is rejoicing over you with loud singing. Do you hear Him singing? See, do you hear it? See, I know it. I, I can hear some of you. But wait a minute. What about when I sin? Then He is spanking you and He is singing. That's what He's doing. He's singing while spanking because He loves you. Do you hear Him singing? This is why it's so impactful. Why would you ever sin or tie something in from the world with this singing, rejoicing God? He is that good. He is that loving. And you are more loved than you could ever imagine. You're more forgiven than you could ever dream. He is rejoicing over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Father, we need this word today. Transform people by the grace and goodness and kindness of God. Lord, I pray for my non-Christian friends that are here or listening, watching online. I pray they would they would repent and trust this good God and be saved from the coming judgment. I pray for my Christian friends that they would believe, they would hear you singing. That in the gospel, it is finished. There's nothing more to be paid. Father, stir our hearts to the truths of these things and let it change us for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.